to All That Matters. I'm Kay Rollins. And I'm Chris Chang and Phillips. So, Chris, did you watch the election results last night? Yes, yes, historic. Uh, sadly, the Artisan Partisan Party did not come out on top. Shucks. Yeah, which was, of course, our beloved fictional party from our provincial election special a couple weeks ago, uh, because we tell stories each week about arts and culture. And each week, we try to take small bites out of big questions. Um, so there was a big shift, and and we've passed from one government to another. Mm-hmm. And uh, so speaking of things that have passed on... Today, we're asking, uh, is the author dead? So, Chris, maybe we should explain what exactly we mean by dead, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, all right. Here's what I got. Okay. Did you ever read Calvin and Hobbes when you were a kid? Uh, yes, of course. <laughs> um, a lot of people our age, uh, myself included, also did. Uh, grew up reading about Calvin and Hobbes uh, and their adventures in the comics. And uh, so did Joel Allen Schroeder, the director of this documentary, Dear Mr. Watterson, uh, which is on Netflix. And hmm. this movie is kind of a love letter to Bill Watterson, who created Calvin and Hobbes. Uh, but it's also a story of him trying to figure out what Bill Watterson meant in his strips. And the director pulls out this one big Sunday strip as an example, uh, and he says it's always kind of been a mystery to him. It, Calvin starts off on his toboggan at the, the top of a, a mountainous cliff. Typical. Yeah, yeah, and uh, he's about to careen over the side, and he like zooms down this gigantic cliff, and then he stops at the bottom, and you, he looks back, and you see it was just a tiny hill, and he sighs. And uh, the director says he, he feels like the strip is saying something about like adventure and joy and maybe loss, but he doesn't get an answer from the person who made it because Bill Watterson is incredibly reclusive. And he didn't give any interviews for the movie, and there aren't any even public pictures of what he looks like out there. So it's kind of poignant and sad thing about this director haunted by this comic strip that will never really be explained to him by its creator. But... Does Bill Watterson owe anybody an explanation? And if he gave one, would his answer be the right one? Okay, so for all intents and purposes, we're asking, is the author dead or does the author matter when it comes to interpreting their work? Exactly. Cool. We're going to talk to Canadian photographer Ed Brutinski today, the guy behind the Manufactured Landscape series, and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the new voice that gets poured in when translators get to work. But first, a little witchcraft. Snape at no point acts like an innocent man. He always acts particularly creepy and villainous, such as that scene where he delivers to Lupin the smoking goblet. He, and I quote, backed out of the room, unsmiling and watchful. Who backs out of a room? Me, every day. It's creepy. It's the only way I leave rooms. I back out of them unsmiling <laughs> and watchful, maintaining unnerving eye contact with whoever's in that room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, uh, if you haven't heard it yet, that is a clip from Edmonton's wonderful new podcast, Witch Please. So excellent. A podcast, yeah. About Snape, Lupin, and all the other denizens of the Harry Potter world by two self-described lady scholars and instructors at the University of Alberta, Marcel Cosman and Hannah McGregor. I can say objectively, as a friend of both Marcel and Hannah's, that it is hilarious, and a central part of their show's approach is that the author of the Harry Potter series, J.K. Rowling, is most definitely dead. Harry Potter novels and doing this deep read of them for this podcast. 
Well, it started as, um, I think, sort of a friendship quest is the best way to put it. (laughs) Um, We were casually chatting about the Harry Potter books and how meaningful they are to Marcel. And I mentioned off the cuff that I have only read them once. And can you introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Hannah McGregor. And I'm Marcel Cosman. (laughs) And we're the hosts of Which Which Please? (laughs) So it started as a friendship quest. It started as a friendship quest. Um, we sort of uh, suggested it might be fun to reread them together, since Marcel's really familiar with them and I'd only read them once. And then we were like, well, if we're going to read a bunch of books in a row, we should probably make a podcast yeah. about it. I also have the memory of a goldfish, though. So even though I've read them like at least six times each, I every time I reread them, it's like they're completely new and I've never read them before. It's the strangest experience. <laughs> Whereas I think I have like false memory syndrome because... Because I was pretty sure I'd read all of them, but now engaging more actively with fans, I'm coming to the conclusion that I may have not actually read the last book in the series. Hmm. I may have only like read or seen the movie and like chatted with some people about the book and just decided that meant I read the book. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, one of the things that has blown my mind listening to the podcast has been realizing that Harry is not always a reliable narrator to Mm. describe what's going on around him. Uh, So tell me, uh, just as an example, what made you skeptical about his account of uh, the exams at the end of his first year at at Hogwarts? I mean, I think part of it is the distance now of reading as adults, right? Particularly reading as adults who are teachers. And so it's much more um, natural, I think, for us to identify with the professor characters at Hogwarts, the school that Harry Potter is attending, um, and to think of things, when you start thinking of things from their perspective instead of the children's perspective, you start to notice a lot of really suspicious gaps. Yeah, my favorite thing is really the fact that the exams get canceled in book two. Like, that's just ludicrous and is obviously not correct. Book two, book two. Oh, that's okay. I wasn't sure if you meant book one or book two, Mm. but I decided I would answer in terms of book two. (laughs) Thank you. Because that's how I do things. (laughs) (laughs) That just can't possibly be true because I know how school works. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if you need accreditation for the world, you can't just, like, cancel the thing that gives it to you just for as a treat. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And similarly, like, I mean, we talk talk a lot about the way that Professor Snape, the sort of villainous mean teacher character, Mm. appears through Harry's perspective and how um, there's no possible way a real teacher would do those things. Mm -hmm. Um, So you have to start, when you're thinking through it from the perspective of a teacher, you have to start thinking, well, why does this character look like this? Well, maybe it's because 11-year-olds aren't super good at judging the motives and behaviors of adults. Mm -hmm. Um, You two do something that I think a lot of Harry Potter fans are uh, very reluctant to do, which is to take J.K. Rowling's intentions as an author and kind of put them in a box and just deal (laughs) with what the text (laughs) actually says, like, um, you know, what it suggests about accreditation in the Western world. Um, uh, Tell me about one of the perhaps unintentional messages in the books uh, that you guys are willing to talk about that maybe J.K. Rowling would not have intended to put in there. Yeah, well, we've been we've been talking a lot about the fat shaming in the books. I did not realize how prevalent the fat shaming in Harry Potter was until this particular reading, because I think it's been a, a pretty long time, and I think that I was um, quite comfortably indoctrinated into the um, uh, thin, privileged world that we live in until, I would say, maybe like the last five years or so. Um, and and so on rereading the books, it's been really 
um, disturbing to me how how clear and intense that particular um, prejudice is just is just filtered throughout the book in a lot of in a lot of tiny ways. Like they're the the major ways where Harry um, describes Uncle Vernon's fat finger, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there are also a lot of these kinds of um, like microaggressions sort of peppered throughout the rest of the throughout the rest of the books. When she describes characters as having like a fat finger, or uh, she also describes, I think, uh, Harry's uncle Vernon as having no neck. Like, what what mm-hmm. is she associating with that? Yeah, she's she's building a very clear relationship between fatness and villainy, um, which is completely different from the. Um, from the type of villainy that we witness in the wizarding world, it's more like muggles who are fat and lazy and evil and corrupt um, are part of what's terrible about muggles. So Mm -hmm. it's sort of like fat muggles are the worst muggles. Yeah, I mean, fatness in the muggle world is a sign of um, stupidity Mm -hmm. and complacency. Yeah. And I think this is part of sort of a larger trend that we see through the books, which is that um, Rowling is quite um, quick to draw on problematic tropes, let's Mm -hmm. say, sort of images that circulate really easily in our world that can indicate to you very quickly whether a character is a good person or a bad person, what you're supposed to think of them. So Snape has greasy hair. That's how you know he's a villain. Mm -hmm. Um, Uncle Vernon and Dudley are fat. That's how you know that they are bad people. the goblins who are the bankers mm-hmm. in the wizarding world are swarthy and clever, yeah. which is how that you know that they are vaguely Semitic and not particularly trustworthy. They're a little yeah. bit Jewish. They're a little yeah. bit super incredibly Jewish. <laughs> um, and so it's not so much ever an overt hateful discourse in the books. It never says, like, we hate these characters because they're fat, we hate these characters Mm -hmm. because they're Jewish. It's just um, a sort of drawing on a shared cultural vocabulary that is itself rooted in forms of um, oppression and uh, hatefulness towards Mm. certain kinds of non-normative identities. She's just using these cultural shorthands without kind of being critical about what they might mean. Yeah. So J.K. Rowling is not actually literally dead. She's still alive and, and maintaining. <laughs> Bless her. <laughs> the the you know the fan website Pottermore, and she does mm-hmm. lots of interviews, and she does try to um, recontextualize a lot of, of how we read the books. Like mm-hmm. um, she's talked about like the tragic romantic backstory of some of Harry Harry's profs. Um, so why is it worth doing at least one read to sort of ignore her and treat the books as a complete package on their own? Because the second a book is written and is released out into the world, it has impact on individual readers that has absolutely nothing to do with what the author meant that impact to be, mm-hmm. right? That's the real, I think, the real point of saying the author is dead um, is to acknowledge that what a reader does with a book is not controlled by what the author meant for them to do with the yeah. book. Books are uncontrollable, chaotic things that enter in people's into people's lives in deeply personal, deeply subjective ways. So... Sure, I might say as a fat reader that Rowling never meant to hurt my feelings, but that is entirely irrelevant because she has produced this text that's out moving in the world, reinforcing this really sort of um, problematic uh, stigma surrounding certain bodies. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter if she didn't mean to because her books are out there now.
thanks to Marcel Cosman and Hannah McGregor, hosts of the podcast Witch Please. If you want to hear more of our conversation, go to our website, allthatmatterscsr.wordpress.com. You can find their podcast at ohwitchplease.ca and on iTunes. Also, they are constantly on Twitter, just all the time on Twitter. Uh, Kate, what house would you be in at uh, Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry? Uh, like, I don't know, Hufflepuff? They never seem to get a lot of attention, poor Hufflepuff. Oh, that's sweet. <laughs> well, for all you Hufflepuffs, Gryffindors, Slytherins, and Ravenclaws out there, you are listening to All That Matters from CJSR. I'm Chris Changan Phillips. And I'm Kay Rollins. And today we are asking, is the author dead? For some theorists, the question of what the author meant is and has been for quite some time rather passe. So take, for example, Roland Barthes. In his 1967 essay, The Death of the Author, Barthes questioned the value of explaining a text through the eyes of the author rather than through, you know, your own eyes. Hmm. So the author then would be, you know, the person on the cover, the person in the artist credits. But for Barthes, a text explanation came from the interpretive work done by the reader. So meaning and the authorship of that meaning lay more in the interpretation than in penmanship. Hmm. Um, so for Bart, in a lot of ways, the author was as good as dead. But what happens when the interpretive reader in this scenario is substituted with a translator? What happens to the author in translation? And to what extent could the translator become the author? Hmm. I want translations with copious footnotes. Footnotes reaching up like skyscrapers to the top of this or that page so as to leave only the gleam of one textual line between commentary and eternity. Vladimir Nabokov, Problems of Translation, Anagin in English, 1955. I first read this quote in a book by Yoko Tawada called Portrait of a Tongue. Originally written in German, this quote was used as the epigraph to the translator's introduction. The translator was Chantal Wright. Hi, Chantal, are you there? Yes. Chantal Wright specializes in the study and translation of exophonic literature. That is, literature written in a language that is not native to the author. So my name is uh, Chantal Wright. I am both a literary translator. I work from German primarily into English, um, but I also work from French into English. And um, I am at the same time an academic. So I teach um, literary translation and comparative literary studies at the University of Warwick in the UK. I asked Chantal to explain why she used the epigraph from Nabokov in her translation of Portrait of a Tongue. Well, I think Nabokov is one of those people that, that literary translators really love to hate because, you know, he did this famous translation of um, Onegin, which is basically not the translation. It's, it's sort of a, it's kind of a very, very detailed commentary i think it's four four volumes and the translation is in the first volume and the, the the next three volumes are all kind of his notes sort of minutely explaining kind of word by word and line by line what what's happening so i think they were sort of using that as a starting point to sort of introduce this project which i think is about opening up the translation process which very often readers don't see um you know you read a translated text and you might not even be aware that it's that it's a translation, and the Tawada translation is very much a kind of overt translation. It's about saying, you know, well, here I am, I'm the translator, I'm on the right-hand side of the page, the author's on the left-hand side of the page. So I think Nabokov was kind of a starting point, but, but my project is obviously very different from his. One um, similarity I see between them is they're both really visible translations. Yeah. And that's 
not something even now that most people are used to, like you say, you know, the translator sort of becomes a medium um, through which you get to read the original text in a sense. So what does a visible translation offer to people that, that an invisible translation, as it were, can't or doesn't? I think it's fairly well sort of accepted and, and theorized these days, at least sort of when we talk about translation in the academy, that translators are subjective beings. You know, when, when we translate something, it's not like putting it through Google Translate or you know, another sort of program um, for translating things. Trans- translators are people and they bring a whole bunch of, you know, they bring that, their own context to, to the translation of a text, you know, the, the things that they've read, the lives that they've led, um, you know, whichever room they're sitting in at that particular moment, what they're looking at out of the window, I think all, all, all that finds its way into the text. And so I think that overtly visible translation like the Tawada is, is an attempt to sort of call your attention to the fact that translated literature is mediated for you by somebody who's read the text. And in a sense, you're reading their, their version of that text. It's not a neutral presentation of a book or a poem. Translations and translators are subjective. It's generally agreed that there is something that separates good translations from bad ones. But nailing down exactly what that something would be is incredibly difficult. Translated texts aren't produced through some kind of formula or algorithm. Each comes with its own set of variables, voices, and intentions. And as a result, no translated text will ever be the same as the original text, nor is any other translation of that text. And this brings up questions of authorship. Who is the author of a translated text? As far as copyright law is concerned, I think it's quite clear who the author is. Um, you know, the translator is always secondary. It's clear where the, where the rights belong to the book. Um, I think for me, though, a translation has two authors. I mean, it, it, it has two voices in the text. It has the original author, and then the translator is in there as well. And the original author is in there mediated by somebody else. You have no, as a reader, you have no direct access to that author. You know, you're reading Garcia Marquez, you know, as translated by Edith Grossman, or you're reading Dostoevsky as translated by Pavir and, and, and Volokonsky. So there are, there are two authors in there and two writers, and, and I do very much understand translators to be writers. So translators do in some sense become authors, or at least writers in their own right. But for Chantal Wright, this doesn't mean that the author of the original text has been demoted or erased. I mean, the author's very much there, you know, as a translator, um, you might want to consult with them. Um, you know, they may or may not be available, but of course there are certain things that they know that might be helpful. Um, they don't know everything, and I think that, that, you know, they don't have the sort of final interpretive word on their text. They're not the final authority on their text, but they, yeah, they're still, they're still very much there. A translation is a kind of a, it's almost like a, a, a dialogue with the, with the author or with the text that the author has produced in any case. A translator wields a lot of power. Many readers are not able to go back and read the original text. As readers, we trust that translators are giving us their honest account of a text, that they're building a bridge between us and the original that will help us understand. But that's not always what happens. There's a tendency to sort of always think of ourselves as good people who are doing something good and building bridges and, and, and bringing these, this literature from, from foreign cultures, you know, making it accessible to our own, to our own cultures. Um, but, you know, translation can also be 
can also do bad things, I think. You know, translators can have agendas and, and ideologies and uh, either consciously or unconsciously, you know, they can do things with text that distort them. We're all swimming in ideology, if you like, and it's, I think, although we often, we like to think of ourselves as, as bridge builders, it's not all your motives are apparent to you, I think. I wonder then if this method of visible translation can be sort of a way to safeguard against those unintentional distortions and sort of necessary distortions. I mean, translation does necessarily distort the text. It's it's moving it from one mode to another, right? But But by making it visible and by saying, you know, I'm not an objective machine, I'm not unbiased, these are my thoughts as I went through the process. Is it, is it sort of a, a safeguard against pretending to be objective and and straightforward and knowing that, in fact, you're not and you can't be? I think so. I mean, a lot of the time, translators don't get any space to be open about what they're doing, you know, to explain. Um, you're a lucky translator if you get, you know, a preface or a, an introduction or, or an afterword. You know, very often translators don't so what you get is the translation but you don't have much sense of who the person is who created this and and why and what they think about the text and and what the process of translating was like for them so I think if you have that opportunity it's great and you should take it and it's a chance to explain yourself opening up the process keeps you honest in in a sense it allows people to see what you're doing and, and perhaps also to see those motives that you don't don't see yourself so the author is still very much present in translation but maybe it's time we started focusing our attentions more on the presence of the translator. Thank you again to Chantal Wright for speaking with me for that piece. And uh, you can find her translations at chantalwright.org. That's Wright with a W. You're listening to All That Matters from CJSR. So we're sorry. Uh, we heard the argument for ignoring the author. And we've pretty much got this question settled, right? Well, not so fast. For our last story, we're going to talk to someone who, considering how political his work is, it's a little surprising that he doesn't talk about what his work means very much. Canadian photographer Canadian photographer Edward Bertinsky uh, uses his pictures to show extreme landscapes made by humans, abandoned marble quarries and mountains of e-waste and never-ending freeways. And Ed Bertinsky tends not to add any judgment on the people who created those landscapes. I got a chance to ask him why before his talk at the University of Alberta's International Week this January. What were the first photographs you took that you knew were really showing something new and unexpected about how humans are changing the landscapes that we're part of? Well, I think uh, it really began in the early 80s, like 81, kind of abstract expressionism as my kind of point of departure. So I was kind of going in and photographing, you know, just crazy brambles and, you know, brush and, and just, but in the pristine landscape. That's what I was kind of working on and then discovered, you know, in a couple, in, in, in some of my travels that I've always was attracted just naturally to photographing these kinds of man-altered landscapes. And, and then, you know, and I never thought of them as possibly being um, subjects for the camera. I just never thought, well, you know, would anybody ever be interested in these kinds of places? But then a bigger idea took hold in my, in my mind is that, well, ultimately, these are actually more interesting landscapes than the ones that are the pristine, that that, that world is 
kind of been digested. It's it, even though I'm trying to find another angle on it, another way to describe it, it but it's already kind of been done um, in some ways, and um, and to kind of pursue that um, just seemed to be. Um, a kind of a yearning for the past, a yearning for a nostalgia. Maybe because it's so uh, contemporary and it feels so much like journalism, um, a lot of people often ask you to say something explicitly about what you think that it means. So why did you decide not to present those photographs as explicit praise or condemnation of what you were seeing? You know, it's too, it's too complex an issue to say right or wrong. Um, it, you know, everybody wants that, you know, you know, to point out the baddies and, uh, and aren't we all good? Well, we're all implied. We all, we've all sat in jets. We all sat on buses or cars and bikes and, 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 you know, and our chairs that are made of steel and whatever we're, you know, the springs in our bed are made of, you know, steel everywhere we look, you know, our fridge or so, you know, is what you're saying is that we shouldn't do that. And if you're saying that then what does that mean, you know? And uh, and if you have trouble with a big quarry or a big place where we get aggregate from and sand and whatever to build our cities, and, it, you know, and if you have trouble with oil, which you, you know, move around on, or if you have trouble with, you know, blacktop that we drive on, uh, you know, in terms of tar, you know, then, it, then if you have trouble with the landscapes and what's happening in the landscape, then you should have as much trouble with a city that you live in and your whole life, basically, because... You know, if you, you know, like I say, if you hate the quarries and if you hate, what, you know, or if you what, what it represents or the or, or the you know, aggregate areas, then you should turn towards our city and find the same and have the same response because mm-hmm. well, you can't have one without the other. They're 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 an equivalency, but we tend to think that you know one is negative and the city is positive. Uh, we tend to think uh, no one thinks of uh, food as a negative, but. You know, the creation of food has now, you know, tipped us over in, ter- in terms of nitrates going into the water tables and and, and screwing up, you know, uh, a lot of the water that's out there today. Uh, you know, whether it's, you know, you know, freshwater rivers or deltas. So we've got, you know, that kind of thing. Plus, if you look at what's changed the surface of the planet more than anything, what's, de- what's destroyed more forests more than anything or more prairies more than anything or even what's you know how do how have we terraform deserts like in california uh it's farming and so farming is the the single largest destructive uh activity that we do as as humans but we tend not to think of a, a farm as a destructive human force on the planet of a of a, of a transition of a existing habitat and an ecosystem to something that just provides calories but but we've done that in a huge scale so so I just think that 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 thinking of it in binary right or wrong is is not is not treating the subject with the complexity it deserves hmm. uh, I'm curious how important is it to manage your reputation for being balanced like this, how important is it to manage that reputation so that you can continue to get access to these interesting places that you photograph, abandoned quarries and shipbreaking yards and huge textile factories? How much of that is an artistic choice and how much of that is strategic in being able to get back in a second time? Well, I mean, philosophically, I, I still stand by what I just finished saying, but um, and I, but I think in terms of what you're saying, if I if I came out as a card-carrying environmentalist, Greenpeace kind of, uh, I'm going to 
you know, I'm, I'm looking for the bad guys and I'm going to take you down. Um, you know, I want to take you down. Uh, th- that would probably not bode well, you know, for shooting in sensitive places like China, uh, you know, or or wherever I want to go. It's it, it, it would be it would be difficult, I think, for anybody to get the kind of unbridled access that I get if you were. Uh, overt activist and uh, you know, a Bill McGibbon standing in front of the pipeline, so to speak. Yeah, that wouldn't work to, to do what I'm doing and to be that. And, and not not that I've actually, you know, it's my ambition to be an activist. It's my my ambition is interesting to make interesting art and to make stuff that 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 has a lasting value um, and and has interesting ideas embedded in it and that has a capacity possibly to even you know raise one's consciousness around the things around our world and what we're doing to it and how we're doing it i mean that's to me a more it's an interesting you know ambition um but you know i don't necessarily feel that you know it, it would help what I'm doing to become an activist, although sometimes I get so angry with some of the things I do see that I want to, you know, scream at the people who are doing it. But, um, you know, it, it, does, it, it just, I don't think it'll help right now. I think I'm, what I'm doing is, 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 is has a better long-term, I think, outcome because it'll leave a, a large record of, of the, the, the things that we've done through through these decades to provide for ever-growing population of humans, which is past the 7 billion mark, which is quite um, a lot of people. That was Canadian photographer Edward Bertinsky. Well, that's all the time we have today on All That Matters. All That Matters is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton. Our theme music is by Dokashi Teru. Additional music today by Arca and Cosmo Club. We really like hearing from all you folks out there in listener land. So tweet us and let you know, let us know what you thought of the show at ATMCJSR. And you can also find us on Facebook and at our website, allthatmatterscjsr.wordpress.com. I'm Chris Chang and Phillips. And I'm Kay Rollins. Thanks for listening. Thank you.